Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 14, What Would You Say If I Sang Out of Tune?, where we will be looking at Chapters 23 and 24 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of asking for help. Before we begin, let us get all of the explanation bits out of the way. Each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemus of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as The Lightning Tree and The Slow Regard of Silent Things, or B, you are just not a spoiler-phobe. Needless to say, beyond this point, there be spoilers. Also a word to our community, be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. And it is now time for a 45-second recap of the section of the book that we have read this week. I'm Purred Happily, and this is Purred Happily. Whatever. Anyway, are you gonna get this right, or are you gonna get this delightfully wrong? Oh, we're gonna do it right. There will be no cherries. So, cherries. No cherries. So, cherries. I don't know if you heard the part where I said no in front of cherries. Cherries. No. Cherries. No. Cherries. No. Cherries. No. Cherries. No. Cherries. No. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> In three, two, one, go. Whilst playing at cards, Quoth and his friends speculate about his canards that might spell his end. After a strange attack of chills interrupts Quoth's set, the boys retreat to examine his ills while he has them a candle get. After a spot of stigmata, Quoth quickly realizes, but what's just the mata, and quickly surmises. Naturally, he suspects Ambrose is behind his situation, though it's not his preferred foe. No need for libation. After prodding from Will, Quoth divines the nature of his malefactor, as Davy's de desired ill is sufficient attractor. After startling Arya on the roof, Quoth hides his blood in a pool. Of his goodness, she needs no proof, even though he broke her rule. 30.55 seconds. No cherries. Cherries. No. Cherries. We've been over this. No! <laughs> okay. No cherries this week. No cherries this week. I know you're mildly disappointed by this. More than mildly. Very, very disappointed. I want more cherries in the house. They're not in season. Not the point. I'm sure we can find cherry-flavored something or other, and I think I know exactly what your next cherry punishment will be. Oh? And it's something we'll have to get a can of and then throw away because it's disgusting even to me. Which is? Cherry pie filling. Why would you do that? Who are you? I'm delightful. That wasn't. <laughs> Alright, I think we should probably get into the book. This section 
we decided to look at through a lens of asking for help, not so much because Kvothe actually asks for help, but more like maybe this is an instance where he goes about asking the wrong way and then gives up and then is inflicted by help. He also, for once, does not refuse help. That's true. He doesn't beg off. He just doesn't take that further step to say, hey, I actually need the help. Please help me. Thank you. Oh, my God. This also goes to show our theory that Kvothe has better friends than he deserves. It makes it abundantly clear. And he also acknowledges it. Yeah, the acknowledging it happens at the very end, specifically stating they were the best sort of friends, the sort everyone hopes for, but no one deserves, least of all me. And we have been saying this the whole time, but I think we should get into it. So we begin with the boys are just out playing cards at anchors before Kvothe's usual set. And they're all like, you should go to the Medica. <laughs> and apparently he did, and Mola just kind of threw him out <laughs> and said it was all in his head. Well, okay. So I can see her impulse to just kind of, yeah, yeah, that's fine, go away. But if someone is feeling like they're cooking from the inside out and then shows up in the Medica and all you get is, yeah, yeah, go away, maybe that person shouldn't be an alpha. Then again, Kvothe has put her in a tight spot before, too. I mean, if she reports exactly what all of the extent of his injuries actually are to the Masters, she could be thrown out. I mean, this is something I think where Kvothe does not fully take into account just how lucky he is that she took a chance on him in the first place. Right. Physical injury is cool. Malfeasance is not something that happens as a rule, like in civilized society or whatever. So I can see why maybe she just was like, okay, now you're being a hypochondriac, go away. So she works as effectively a trauma nurse, which means that she is constantly having to perform triage on everyone that comes in and prioritize who she's going to devote her time to. And Quoth comes in with a fever and then it goes away. And it looks like a rash of some sort. I mean, if she's busy and he just keeps pestering her. Again, though, that wasn't a very thorough exam and or treating and or anything. And there are physical symptoms. I'm tempted to believe that Kvothe just did the thing of like, yeah, I tried that and it didn't work. Are you implying that Kvothe might not be 100% honest in what he tells his friends? Never. No. Of course not. Slash S. <laughs> well, I, for one, am shocked. Shocked, I tell you. I'm mostly thinking that if he did talk to Mola, which he probably did, he probably downplayed it a little bit. But there have been situations where, let's say you call your internet service provider and they all have a script that they have to make you go through. It is not the customer service person's fault that they have to go through all of the are you an idiot script. 
or all of the, I've done this a million times every single time I ever have to call my cable service provider, Ugh. script. They're there doing a job. I've worked customer service on the phone. Please don't be a jerk to their customer service provider. That all being said, maybe sometimes when they ask me to go unplug my router and leave it off for 30 seconds and plug it back in, and I've already done that three times before calling them, I say, yeah, yeah, I did that. <laughs> I also suspect he may have gone to see her in a unofficial capacity. Right, like not at the Medica. And at that point, she might be studying or doing goodness knows what else that's way more important to her than this little upstart that just keeps pestering her. Meanwhile, we also get that apparently that brief little fling with Sim didn't go so hot for either of them. I don't know that she specifically thought of it as like the beginning to a relationship. She probably was like, yeah, fun date, cool. Apparently she was not into it as anything more than a night out, though. I mean, that's her prerogative. Yeah. I also kind of get the sense that Sim is the sort of guy who falls head over heels way too quickly. I would describe him as probably a serial monogamist. Yeah. Serial relationship person. The sort of person who thinks after each date... Oh my goodness, this could be the one. I'm going to marry this girl. You know, I've been there when I was younger. That kind of was me. Does not surprise me a bit. Took a while to get over that. Did you get over that? Because as soon as we started dating, it was just like there wasn't any other option. For either of us. I'm saying for either of us. Because we are both, both serial relationship people. I did get over it. It took some heartbreaks here and there but you know eventually you start to learn that you just have to view any given relationship that you're in for what it is not what you wish it was and i kind of get the feeling that sim probably is the sort who's sitting there thinking about what's the wedding going to be like before the appetizer's been ordered says the person who'd agreed to marry me like i don't know a month in it was more than that I think it was like three months no. No, it wasn't. Because it was before PAX. Well, I mean, that would have still been three months. I don't know that it was three months. It feels like three months. Let's just say three months. Why? Because you don't want to be the person who looked at your partner and goes, you know what, this sounds like it's going to be a long-lasting relationship when I've only known you in this capacity for a month. You said the same thing, so... Right. I'm not ashamed of this. Nine years after we got married, which is still, <laughs> what, 11 years after we dated, which is still, what, like, 17 years after we met? <laughs> I mean, when you put it that way. I've known you for, like, half my life now. <laughs> anyway, back to Sim... And the girl of the week. I love how Will's just like, just don't talk about it. You can just see the finger across the throat saying, and the shaking head. Mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> I realize this is an oral medium, so my gesturing did not come across. Yes, because this is a podcast and we do not record it on video. I don't know if anyone actually would be remotely interested in us doing that. 
also it would be a pain in my ash to edit and lighting Ooh. but in the meantime they do offer some theories quoth has a fear that it's something he'd been exposed to in the fishery right we actually saw that scene where he got whatever transporting agent on him and it burned through his shirt but he used the calipers and just very gingerly like walked over to somewhere where he could take it off without getting it on his skin and he swears everything holy that he didn't get it on his skin and it wasn't that you know i can see why that would be eating at him sounds like a scary experience i mean i have a healthy fear of random chemicals getting on my skin and i know i've talked about my ninth grade science teacher before but he really did delight in just excruciatingly detailed readings of the warning labels to all of the crap that we were trying to do like separating solutions of or whatnot and let's not forget Quoth has had some pretty keen object lessons on just how terrifying some of the relatively common substances in the fishery actually are Chekhov's bone tar anyone <laughs> the glass furnace right all of these are just massive dangerous things <laughs> and i can see how that would eat at you hopefully not literally meanwhile sim theorizes these could be lingering after effects of the plumbob free principles as he calls these i, I mean it could be yeah it's a complex piece of alchemy, and we don't know how well it was put together, and it's not unheard of for compounds to stay in your body for a long time after they've been ingested, so... Especially fat-soluble ones. So then, after they finish their hand of cards, Quoth goes up, plays his show, and playing music does seem to lighten his mood a bit. I had something I wanted to talk about with this. I found that when I'm feeling just a little bit off, when I'm obsessing about something when I'm just having a rough time. Something as simple as sitting down and playing with my guitars or, you know, just doing something to take my mind off really does help my overall mood and mental well-being. So I can see how this would have an effect on Quoth, especially given that music is so central to his identity. And it's good that he has that outlet. We also get a little bit about how his case is looking pretty darn shabby these days. Because focusing on a little minor detail is never, ever, ever just focusing on a little minor detail. There's always a reason, especially in these books, but I'd say in a lot of books, like if something is just randomly fixated on once, twice, all the time, something's going to happen with it. It's like, hey, reader, remember that this is a thing. And I gotta say, if you are a professional musician or even just an amateur who really cares about their instruments, it's worth it to invest in a good case. And in this particular instance, a good case saves Quoth's life later on. We'll find out more about that later. I did say that there would be spoilers. That is true. <laughs> But we'll discuss that more in depth later. When it happens. Yes. Anywho. So moving on, as Quoth is finishing up Simmons' favorite song. Okay, before we get too far in, talking about how music is a thing that really helps Quoth, I wonder if there is some actual real storybook magic 
happening for him with his music. The reason I ask that is because it says, as I sang, even my bruises seem to pain me less. And I'm wondering if he legitimately heals himself, at least a little, through his music, if there is something to be said about him speaking or orating, I guess, something that helps him with his magic or, or is some magical something. Because that's, you know, the name of the wind. He calls upon the wind. I'm wondering if there's anything to do with his music that is in that magical realm. You know, I think there might be something to it. We know that when he is, for instance, alone in the forest in the first book, his music is sort of a way that he's able to retreat from his waking mind and allow his sleeping mind to just process things. And in that earlier passage, he's mostly focusing on just the natural world around him. But here we see him focusing on his audience and his audience is feeding him and he's able to just listen to them and work with them and play with them. It has a very participatory feel to it. He sings a lot of folk songs and things that are meant to be sung along to. And it's not just people sitting there staring at him in awe or whatever. They're participating, they're playing along, they're singing, and it's sort of a communal thing. And I have to think also for someone who's lived so much of his life separated from the rest of society, this is a way that he feels like he can fit in and have a sense of community. There is something special and magical about live music, especially with a smaller audience, a more intimate setting, like an inn, with a group of people who know you, that are at least invested in who you are as their musician, as their entertainment, and possibly even more so in terms of just like, when you take a break, they want to get you a beer or... You know, they want to look out for your well-being. How's school going? How is your search for Denna going? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it is more communal. It is more like a place he belongs. It's the difference between playing a concert hall and playing at your local bar. There's not even really a formal stage. It's just an area of floor that's been cleared off where he can just play his songs. That being said, the fact that absolutely no one notices that he's like, I have to duck out. I am shaking and frozen for no apparent reason. And I am going from like perfectly fine to decrepit and barely able to go up the stairs without help. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a false sense of actual community and more like, camaraderie while he's playing i think that's probably what it is yeah so he immediately starts to feel chills for no reason whatsoever <laughs> well there's a reason but no reason that he can figure out while he's playing and he tries to warm himself on the fire doesn't work so well he leans on will to get him back up to his room asks sim to light a candle off of the main fire and bring it to him. And Sim is like, okay. Up in his room, he winds up doing something that seems dumb. 
Yes. And dangerous. Yes. And in the same way, so I've recently been looked at like something that I've said was dumb and dangerous. I have an allergy that I do not actually know what the cause really is, but I've narrowed it down to two things that I can avoid in their food allergies. It is either distilled vinegar or raw onions. Because we had those food kits, like I think it was Blue Apron or HelloFresh, and one of the things to make was pickled onions to go on a burger or something. And it was super tasty, but afterward I felt like I was having a harder time breathing because my throat was raw and a little swollen. And then I recounted this story to a friend of mine who works in public health. And so her 100% like focus on everything is how is this affecting you? And, you know, go to the freaking hospital now. And it wasn't that bad. It really wasn't that bad. I looked it up like how to make sure that I wasn't having like anaphylactic shock or something. It's very mild. It's not life-threatening, but I'd prefer not to have it happen again because it doesn't feel good. You know, Benadryl and almonds actually like got rid of it. It's fine, whatever. But she looked at me like I was crazy for saying the words that were coming out my mouth about this. Like, and I understand listening to me describe it because I didn't have the right words to describe it and how mild it really is made her go, okay, you nuts. You, 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 mm -mm. But so rereading this and having Quoth or Coat telling his story about how he jammed a splinter into his hand, made it bleed and then stuck it into the fire and then like linked the two so that he wouldn't be cold any longer, but like so that he also wouldn't boil his blood away. That boy nuts. Yeah, it, it's definitely a reckless action there. Which is kind of a theme with Quoth, so I guess we can't be too surprised. No. So th then he ends up just saying, oh yeah, it's fine, it's fine, except for this burn across my chest. And now I'm feeling way too hot. Oh crap. And he's immediately like, okay, that's over. I gotta go stick my head out of the window now. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that gambit did not really pay off. This is not normal. This is definitely not normal. But he's like, I already tried going to the Medica. We shouldn't go back. I don't think that... Uh, uh, sure. You do you, but... Um, and then he's like, I figured it out. It's malfeasance. I love how his reaction is, oh, that actually explains a lot. This is a lot easier to deal with. <laughs> Here I thought I'd poison myself. Turns out someone's just trying to kill me. <laughs> Somehow I think that's worse, Quoth. I think also it's the fear of the unknown. Because if it's malfeasance, he knows how he can combat that. He has a plan moving forward. When it's this nebulous, floating, unknown malady, that can be really terrifying. Like, if it's something that you know that, uh, oh, I know, I just need to take almonds and Benadryl, for instance. That's a lot less terrifying than suddenly my throat is constricting. Again, though, I do want everyone to understand it was more like I immediately had a sore throat than 
oh my god, I can't breathe. That, mm, it's fine. <laughs> like, you weren't that worried. We're fine. Point being, though, when it's something where there's a known cause and action thing that you can do to mitigate it, it's a lot less terrifying. Absolutely. And, I mean, it just also speaks to how out of whack Quoth's danger senses are, just by virtue of all of the trauma he's had to endure. That is true. That is absolutely true. I think that that's actually a thing that happens to a lot of people, maybe me included. But he's like, oh, oh, it's just that. No big deal. And then he's like, well, my overinflated sense of ego tells me that I am the best duelist in Elksadol's class, so I'm fine. Yeah, I mean, yes, you are the best of the students. <laughs> right. And then Will kind of gently pokes at him and goes, while you're awake. Yeah. And he's like, oh, right. I'm going to bluff my way through how scared I am because I just about crapped myself. And then, of course, there's the debates about who could be behind all of this. And, of course, he naturally suspects Ambrose. Of course he did. And I just want to point out, Ambrose is living rent-free in Kvothe's head right now. I don't think Ambrose thinks nearly as much about Kvothe as Kvothe thinks about Ambrose. Even though Ambrose is Kvothe's biggest enemy right now. Kvothe is most definitely not Ambrose's biggest enemy. Now, Ambrose probably suspects that Kvothe is the one that broke into his room. But the whole point is, if he found blood... He's trying to flush out whoever it was, not I'm going to try to kill Kvothe by making him think that he's on fire and also being dunked into the deepest lake on Hoth. It's not really his style. And as they point out, there are ways that he could more effectively find out who broke into his apartment. All that being said, I haven't read this particular book in a while and I'm really forgetting some of the details so forgive me audience but i'm sure one of you will probably correct us on twitter i think that there is a connection about why this is happening to Kvothe and that davy does have something to do with it and ambrose also has something to do with it we'll get there soon enough i don't think though this is a case of malice that is targeted specifically at Kvothe. it is just at an unknown person who broke into ambrose's apartment that's what i recall like, the blood sample was given to Davy without any identification as to who it belonged to. And the, the bottle is probably fine. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really remember. Sorry, guys. Uh, tells me I should read the next 800 and... Nope, 900 and two-ish pages oh, well. again. <laughs> Oops. I've read it a bunch of times. This is just not one of those details that is currently stuck in my head and I'll probably remember it again and go, oh, I'm an idiot. Whatever. Let's continue on. But I love how Will throughout all of this is behaving as the most rational of them. He's sitting there asking, okay, so we know about Ambrose, but is there anybody else that has your blood? And then Kvothe is like, oh, yeah, just Davy. But she'd never do anything to me. She likes me. She offered to sleep with me. And how did you respond to that? I ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
you don't think that might make someone angry at you? <laughs> eh, I honestly don't think that Davy gives a crap whether or not Quoth wants to reciprocate that particular offer. I think she just wants to read. We do know that her desire to get into the library is an all-consuming thing. Almost as all-consuming as Quoth's desire. Yeah, the archives are a drug. And Quoth has been very blasé about how Davies reacted to all of this. Right, because he doesn't really care about other people, and he's not as observant as he thinks he is about other people. All that being said, both Will and Sim look at Quoth and go, Who? And I love how Quoth's like, oh, you know, the moneylender. <laughs> the Gaelic. The person that, by all rights, will probably break my knees if I don't pay back my six talents. You know, I could have asked you guys to spot me six talents, but owing her twelve, perfectly fine. That seems smarter. Again, like my story from last time, sometimes we do the dumbest things because of pride. Yep, and Quoth has no shortage of this. True. After a little bit of prodding, though, both Will and Sim are like, what, wait, no, that, Davy, That one? The hell is wrong with you? Why'd you get mixed up with her? <laughs> and at that point, he's able to fend off whoever his attacker is. No, no, we're going to focus on one other little thing that happened right here. Okay. You mean Demon Davy? Great nickname, that one. Right. But, Demon, Angel, Davy, Ari, you're just going to gloss over that. You know, I'm actually less interested in all of that stuff. That's just not stuff that attracts me. I think the having to fight off an angel and a demon and whatever, I think that's about getting into the archives. I really think that that might have more resolution come the next book, but I think that that story of conflating angel like Ari and demon like Davy, and then like, I think both of them are way more powerful, especially Ari, than Quoth gives them credit for. And I feel like if they fought in the under thing, the university might not still stand afterward. I mean, it is basically the understructure that's holding everything up so right it kind of reminds me of the idea of the underground tunnels in seattle a little bit so with his alar safely holding off his attacker for now quoth agrees that he'll spend the night in will's room and will and sim offer to take turns staying up making sure that quoth is protected while he sleeps which like we've said before, these two are great friends. We're about to get to Quoth's other great friend, though, here. Which is to say Ari. Because instead of just going with Will and Sim, he's like, okay, you guys go along, I'm gonna go do something. Proving once again that he just doesn't trust people with his life. I think he's also convinced that he's the cleverest person there is. So... To his own mind, there's no one else who can do anything that requires any sort of thought or cleverness to protect him. And probably he's staving off the idea that Will and Sim will voice of reason him out of doing something stupid. 
I also think there's a part of him who doesn't want to admit that Will and Sim are clever and thoughtful people in their own rights. Kvothe has this idea of himself as being the smart one in the group. I would contend that actually Will is probably the smartest of them. Well-reasoned. The most well-reasoned. Will basically goes full Sherlock Holmes here. He's just asking all the right questions and probing and finding all of these ways to lead Kvothe to actual answers as opposed to just wild guesses. Also, I love the way that Will treats Kvothe in some of this. Willem's voice was slow and patient as if he were talking to a rather dim-witted child. Which he was. Right. Because Kvothe is still a child. And dim-witted at that. Quite often. At least self-serving and self-centered. And he oftentimes knows less than he thinks he does. And really the only way to beat that really is through questioning as opposed to countermanding. Well, I also see Sim pick up the ball after Will has started it down the court, so to speak. And before leaving, Sim goes, I'll watch over you tonight like the colicky infant that you are. I'm like, okay, you two belong together. You two are great friends. And I am a friendship shipper. And you two are great. Yes. Will and Sim are a matched pair. But you're right. We do need to get on to Kvothe's next best friend. You and I have both said before, we think Ari's great. Yes. We love Ari, and we both love the way she takes care of Kvothe. And what she does in this next segment is some really amazing friendship work, I think. And again, I think something that we could all do with learning about. So Ari is portrayed as this broken character that Kvothe has to take great care around. I don't think that that's quite how she sees herself. So we start off with Kvothe trying to be self-sufficient, thinking about pulling his little trick of putting his blood on leaves and sitting them around the house of the wind. But it's about to rain. That will undo all of his plans. There's lightning strikes and he's on top of things, the roof. And he feels like he is brought back unsettlingly to his years in Tarbian. It wasn't that long ago. It was like a year ago when he left. Maybe, maybe a year ago. And he's trying to remind himself that he is no longer the starving child that existed in that city. He's changed himself. He's completely uprooted everything. And then Ari shows up. I think there is a part of him that is still that starving child who has been living in fear because those instincts that he has are still there. But there's a few crucial differences between his time at Imre and his time in Tarbian. I think that difference is community. Specifically, Will and Sim and Ari, people who value him unconditionally and respect him as an equal, plus the university itself. He's got mentors who are actively looking out for him and trying to better him. That's something he hasn't had for a while. And I think that dichotomy is 
useful to observe. But in this cold, stormy night, he's certainly feeling it pretty starkly until Ari shows up. And he's so afraid of scaring her off because he knows that he's bloody. The things that have happened to him include actual open wounds and bruises all before he realized, oh, someone's doing this on purpose. I should probably put my defenses up. But you don't just get rid of blood that quickly, much less the bleeding that he inflicted on himself. So his hand is covered in blood, his arm is covered in blood, but it's dark and he's trying really hard not to scare his friend away. And instead of being frightened of his visage, she's like, you look like an Amir, like one of the Cyridae. And immediately, Quoth's interest is piqued, and he forgets to be cautious around her. And he says, how do you know about the Cyridae? And Ari scampers off between lightning flashes. And Quoth thinks that he's lost her for the rest of the evening. In Quoth's defense, he recognizes where he messed up almost immediately. And when he does continue to look for her, it's not to try and get answers, it's to apologize. Because he knows that he hurt her, even though it was inadvertent. He wants to make sure that she's okay, and that, you know, that he tries to make things right with her. Not to get answers, just to make sure that she's okay. And I think that that's the reason that she ultimately helps him. The next chapter, he finds her in Apple Court. And we get another description of the under thing and how maze-like and just confusing the whole place can be. There were a thousand places she could hide in the under thing. I didn't have a chance of finding her without her permission. She didn't fall apart. She was able to come back without just everything disintegrating for her. And I think that that is a huge step. She is dealing with a lot of trauma. It is very clear by the way that she reacts even to her friends. I think that one of my favorite parts about this is how she actually acknowledges that she didn't run as far this time, that she's making progress even though it's baby steps, there's still steps in the right direction. And I think that's something worth calling out and worth remembering. But also, Hari is probably the only person that Kvothe cares about in this particular way. Wants to take care of. Because he does say, of all the awful things I'd been a part of these last couple days, this was unquestionably the worst of it. And it's because he hurt Ari. He could deal with being attacked. He can deal with being poisoned. He can deal with the plumb bob, all of that. He just can't deal with the fact that he caused his closest friend such pain. Um, I think also it's worth noting that Ari is the one person Quoth feels like he can be that scared, starving kid from Tarbian around. That lonely, vulnerable kid is okay around her. He doesn't have to worry about judgment or anything like that. It's just radical acceptance from Ari. So he tries his best to repair the relationship a little bit, seal up the cracks, and he asks what she was doing on top of things that night. And Ari is sniffling and pretty much having a panic attack from what I can tell. She was looking at the lightning 
I saw one that looked like a tree. A lightning tree, perhaps? A lightning tree is what I was trying to get at. <laughs> and Quoth asks, what was in the lightning? And she answers, galvanic ionization. It's like a little bit of a touching the world that she used to be a part of. She is very smart. She is very skilled. And I think that that's part of what is causing the mental illness. Being so close to the magic system, being so close to understanding all of the way that things work. Yeah, I kind of feel like she has such a strong understanding of all of this. She's seen so much and it's damaged her so much that she's put up these walls of abstraction. So she has to talk about it as a cat's tail or what have you. Things that evoke it and that filter it and make it into something that she can conceptualize without breaking her mind further. The fact that she's working through a lot of stuff, it's not that she's living in this continued state of perpetual madness. She is someone who is working through her issues. She grows. Like right now we are seeing Ari as a growing character as opposed to a static character. I also note that this was the first time that Kvothe has ever seen Ari dirty and that her eyes were darker than normal. I think she's one of the few characters other than Kvothe where eyes changing color has been noted. And if it weren't for the fact that both Mola and Elodin have met Ari, I'd almost think that she was a figment of Kvothe's imagination. Almost. That and also we have a full book that is Ari. She does do things when Kvothe's not around. Right. So he also tells her that he's trying to take care of the blood that is outside of him. Which is a weird request, but it's something that she quickly understands. We're going to talk about the Cyrodiil thing. Oh yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> I know that like the theories and the getting into what all of this stuff means is not that interesting to you but it's interesting to me and it's interesting to a lot of fans okay we'll talk about it then that's part of what the enduring mystery of these books is it's all these cryptic references and hidden associations so when quoth shows ari just how absolutely bloody and gross he is she looks at him gives a tiny, brave smile, and says, You are my Cyridae, and thus above reproach. And says, Evare enum yuge. That actually translates to, for the greater good. You looked it up, so did I. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and can I just say I'm really disappointed that you didn't respond, the greater good. I was just happy that you also looked it up, because... I spent last night looking at Reddit threads and trying to figure out what was going on and realizing that Lauren has actually already said these words and said them back to Kvothe when he was looking up the Emir and the Cyrodiil and all of that stuff, further cementing the idea that maybe Lauren is part of it. One of the things that this brings out to me is that this is part of what makes the Emir so terrifying. I think... They are perhaps the most terrifying organization in the Four Corners. More terrifying than the Chandrian, more terrifying than the Cathay, more terrifying than 
literally anything. Like, the only thing worse than the big bad is the big good. The big bad you can reason with. The big bad you can appeal to self-interest. Dormammu, I have come to bargain. Right. The big bad is someone that is a known quantity. The big good, though, if they believe that killing someone is all it would take to make things better, they will do it and then they will sleep soundly as a baby. Before sleep regression. There is nothing that you can do against the big good if they are convinced that this is what has to be done for the greater good. The greater good. You hear stories about how the Duke of Gibeah was supposedly one of their members, and the Duke of Gibeah conducted all sorts of terrifying medical experiments on his people, all so that he could advance medical knowledge. He believed that what he was doing was absolutely right, and this is why he's so terrifying. Righteous good on his side, yes. Paladins suck. <laughs> Paladins are fun to play until you realize that lawful good... It's one of the hardest alignments to play, and you will see people who can have lawful good characters that actually do behave incredibly benevolently and can be very compelling and interesting. But there are other lawful good characters who are just terrifying zealots. And then you have lawful stupid. There's a lot of those too. Because they don't want to fall into the flip side of the lawful good coin is just evil from a different perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Annie Hoozle. Ari led me through a maze of tunnels that comprised the Underthing, and we went further down through vaults, past Cricklet, and then we moved through several twisting hallways, and down again, using a stone spiral staircase that I'd never seen before. And we're in Clink's. Clink's takes its name from the fact that there are several bottles floating in the water, swirling around, going up and down, changing buoyancy, which is a strange thing. I'm, it's almost like there's this weird vortex in there, and I don't quite understand it, but it's kind of cool. Right, there's also an implication that what goes into Clink's sometimes leaves Clink's and sometimes comes back to Clink's, and that Ari has also previously put her own blood into bottles and sent them away using the same system that she is now showing to Kvothe. And we don't know why. That's a very specific ritual, so to speak. Right. Because she also says hair too. <laughs> but one of the things that fascinates me about Clinks is it's fresh water. Like this is not just drain water or sewage or anything like that. This is actual fresh water. It makes me think that maybe this is actually the well or reservoir that feeds into the running water system of the university. It could be. It could also be the well or reservoir system that feeds into the rivers and lakes nearby or comes from it. Who knows? It's a cool image. Absolutely. But then we get back to Ari being the person who keeps both safe. Once everything is done, there, she said with a tone of immense satisfaction. That's good. We're safe. I think part of it is Kvothe is part of her now. If Kvothe isn't safe, she doesn't feel safe. It's a very symbiotic relationship. It's very beautiful. Our last paragraph of the chapter 
Hours later, washed and bandaged and considerably less naked. Because Ari considered him naked. I made my way to Willem's room in the Muse. That night, and for many more to come, Will and Sim took turns watching over me as I slept, in not a creepy way, keeping me safe with their alar. They were the best sort of friends, the sort everyone hopes for but nobody deserves, least of all me. You get the sense that Will and Sim and Ari are the heroes Quoth needs, not the ones that he deserves. To quote a Batman movie. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> and with that, I think it's time for us to get into our Fronimos. I believe that is correct. It is your turn. And my Fronimos this week is Ari. Because she displays a level of self-awareness. She understands that the fear, the panic, and the running away isn't necessarily normal. Or what she wants. And it's really hard to look at what you're doing and look at whether or not that's something you want to be doing. It's frightening. She also knows how to keep both safe. Even as she herself doesn't feel safe. She knows even if it's a placebo, having both give her that little bit of hair, a little bit of blood, and putting it into the mystical swirling water that has random bottles and random other stuff that we have learned from the slower guard of silent things just kind of in it will keep him from panicking one other thing that i thought was really interesting about ari is she sees kvoth at his most vulnerable and kvoth is afraid for her to see him like this he doesn't want her to worry about him. He's afraid of anyone seeing him like this, but specifically with Ari, it's not about them seeing his vulnerability. It's about Ari being afraid of him. And what's interesting to me is that Ari's response is actually to view him explicitly as heroic, as her knight in shining armor, so to speak. As her Cyrodiil. So she sees him as heroic when he shows vulnerability, not when he displays indomitable strength, which I think is also something that speaks to her wisdom. There is a strength in weakness, a strength in vulnerability, and I like that she recognizes it. So I could have chosen Will, because he's also someone that I would model myself after. He's not placating Kvothe. He's looking at him and going, really? I'm still your friend. I think you're an idiot. I'm not afraid to tell you that you're an idiot. Could you just stop being an idiot for a little bit? I'm going to force my help on you now because I really don't want you to just bleed to death because you fell asleep. And I don't want you to be suffering because you are not allowing yourself to sleep. I have a better solution. You're taking it. And that would have been another route that I could have gone down. But I identify so well with Ari and with her journey and with her desire to help, even as maybe she herself needs help. And yeah, I love that she gets to grow. I think that's a key point that makes her such a unique figure within this story. A lot of the characters don't seem to grow. 
but Ari is an example of someone who does. I agree. I think that's a really good for Nemos. Thank you. So this week, I have the interesting fact. So I have called it as easy as counting your fingers. We often think of counting on our fingers as a natural thing that we learn as children. However, the actual mechanics of finger counting differ widely across nations and cultures. For instance, in the U.S., people often start counting by extending their index finger and then move it down the hand and then go back to the thumb for five. However, in many parts of Europe, people start with a thumb and finish with a pinky. And in Japan, they actually start with an open hand and count by closing their fingers sequentially. Indeed, counting with the fingers isn't limited to counting to ten. In the Philippines, people can use a system of counting that goes all the way up to 50, just using different positions on their right hand to represent numbers 1 through 10, and then using the left hand to count the tens. The moral of the story is that there's no one right way to count on your fingers. There are just ways that work for different people. And the more we learn about these ways of counting, the more we start to understand the complex mental models that make up our various understandings of the world. Even something as simple as numbers, just counting. It's absolutely interesting. I learned the Filipino method when I was in fourth grade, actually. I like how you talk about that, but I think one thing you're forgetting is also American Sign Language does it differently. Absolutely. That's just one of the many different ways that people do it. And American Sign Language differs from British Sign Language versus other places in the world. And... All of these work, but they're different. I think it's also in the same way that different styles of doing maths or math also work. Trying to force people into one system or another is folly. We should allow people to do what makes sense for them. But for me, I naturally would start with my pinky before I started learning American Sign Language. And now if I put up three, I don't do the three that I learned when I was in kindergarten because that's actually six. The thing that looks almost like a W with your index, your middle, and your ring finger, that's a six in American Sign Language. A three is your thumb, your index finger, and your middle finger. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I agree. I like that you kind of went there. I know every once in a while, like when... I'm trying to figure out if something is seven words. I'll just sit there like, you know, counting on my fingers and I'll see you counting on your fingers when you're reading. It's endearing and cute. And it's something that has definitely picked up since we started doing this podcast because we have to find seven words somewhere. And sometimes one of us will spark off the other and go, wait, you just said something that was really cool. Can that be seven words? Oh, crap. <laughs> happens a lot yeah so uh how about you it's your turn for the thing of the week what are you recommending this week all right so i had a different one in my head that i was going to suggest but thematically with the beginning of the chapter i've changed my mind i'm gonna do the one that i was gonna do in like four weeks now and hopefully remember the one that i was gonna do now in four weeks We'll see if that happens. But today in the section that we read, Kfoth is performing a lot of folk songs. There are things that are passed down that come from generations ago 
they might not all be relevant to people's experience now and they might also not always reflect people's current sensibilities but i find that that's the case in traditional folk songs and sea shanties now sea shanties had kind of a tiktok revolution happen this year and also just Irish and British and New Zealand folk songs, because Wellerman is from New Zealand. You think of sea shanties and you think of the British Isles and you might not be right. But you also think of sea shanties and you think of Wellerman and you also would not be right because that is not an actual sea shanty. I digress. The thing that I am recommending right now is the band The Longest Johns. And... If you got caught up in the Wellerman TikTok YouTube sphere of everything, you probably have heard some of their songs. You might have seen some of their streams where they played Assassin's Creed Black Flag and sang along to the actual sea shanties that were in that video game. But I have absolutely loved things that are kind of that drinking song thing for years and years and years and years. And I can attribute most of that to one of my best friends who got me into Gaelic Storm, who I also recommend. And I just, I love these songs. I love the down-tempo ones. I love the parting glass. I have historically gotten things stuck in my head that they still make me happy thinking about when I was 18 years old and my friend had gotten something by silly wizard stuck in my brain and I would just sit there and hum it and more recently I've started listening to the longest johns on YouTube we even ordered a vinyl version of their newest album which we have to wait to come from England <laughs> silly me shipping am I right especially right now but I can't think of a better way to have folk music than on a vinyl record. And I'm so thankful to your dad for gifting us your old record player from, or his old record player from, what, the 70s? Yeah, you got that in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've got a, an existing player previously, but it's not a very good one. Right, it's kind of that resurgence that's happened where a lot of the older millennials who are closer to 40 are like well but my parents had this and I want it now and so I love kind of that mix of this is a really silly song like the longest johns have a song called Moby Duck and that I think has been living in our brains for the last week and a half but they also have those more touching songs like here's to a health and ashes and i love the beat of some of these songs i love the tradition of some of these songs i was lucky enough to go to digipen when they had started up their choir and one of the songs that we got to sing was the parting glass because it was in assassin's creed black flag <laughs> video game college yay i think it's really fun to go in and find the music videos that they've done. They've done some 360 videos that are interesting to watch on a PS5, I gotta say, because 
you have to actually use the controller to go back and forth and watch them go down this canal singing a song that is about someone getting their legs blown off with a cannonball. Morbid? Yes. That's the other thing is like some of the funnier songs, I'm like, this would be fun to introduce to our niece before she can understand what any of the words mean, because I don't think a three-year-old necessarily needs to know about a harpoon going in a gigantic duck's neck, but a one-year-old, it's just a fun beat and I want to see if she danced to it. <laughs> and I'd like to get it stuck into more family members' heads. Cute. Because that is the type of person I am. You're the fun Zizi Fee. I am. Feezy. Feezy. That is what I am to her right now. I am her Feezy. <laughs> so uh, with that, I think it's probably about time to find your seven words. You had the words from the book? I did. And I have put out a feeler on Twitter. That sounds wrong. I have put out a request on Twitter to have people tell me if they prefer something sweet or something more poetic and indicative of Patrick Rothfuss's writing style. And I think based on the fact that I usually put these up on Instagram and I am behind, but I will try to fix that soon. I'm probably going to go with the one that's a little more poetic just because, you know, quote art. But I will also read the one that was sweet which I have actually read twice now. Okay. So that one is, they were the best sort of friends. I love that one. I really do, but out of context, it doesn't make as much sense as the one that I'm going to choose. That being said, there are a couple other ones that I'm going to list off before I give you all my final choice. How do you know about the Syridae? It was a trick I'd used before. It's not that Ambrose isn't a bastard. Of course he knows it was me. Your lips. They're not a good color. Thanks, Sim. I couldn't help but crack a smile. Again. Thanks, Sim. But the one that makes more sense to me to put onto the Instagram word art so therefore, that's the one I'm choosing because I did not get clear feedback from all of you guys on Twitter. So just know that every once in a while I do that. But wanting something doesn't make it so is the one that I chose. It's a good one. And that one is about both wanting to convince himself that Ambrose is well aware that Quoth is the one that broke into his rooms and that Ambrose is also intent on harming Quoth. It would make Quoth's life easier if that's all it was. It would make it make more sense. I don't know that it would make his life easier. I think that if Ambrose really put his mind to it, Quoth's life would not be easier. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that Ambrose's eyes are on bigger prizes than... Messing with the local poor kid. Right. But that if Quoth was more than a little pesky ant, the consequences would be much, 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 much bigger. Yeah. If Ambrose felt that Quoth in any way actually threatened his grander designs, it would be a lot different. While Ambrose may be Quoth's greatest enemy, 
I don't think that Kvothe is anywhere close to Ambrose's greatest enemy. Not on your life. So, I had seven words from life. Speaking of life, this is a phrase that's been rattling around in my head for a while. And it is a quote from the economist Thomas Sowell, which is, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Trade-offs is two words. I'm going to use a technicality there. As I count on my fingers. Yes. <laughs> and the reason I chose this one is that I think it is oftentimes really easy to think about things that go on in the world as things that have easy, simple solutions that solve everything. And that there are silver bullets that can just fix everything. But the fact is, anything that you do has a cost. That cost may be worth paying, but it is not zero cost. And not everyone is going to agree that that cost was worth paying. Right. It is not a guarantee. But people from the outside of the decision are also not guaranteed to believe that the cost was worth paying. And a lot of people have opinions. Oh, yes. But I think really what it boils down to is keeping in mind that when you propose an action, it doesn't have to solve every problem. It doesn't have to address everything. I made up an aphorism, which is when all of your solutions are silver bullets, all of your problems start to look like werewolves. Yeah, I've used that one before. You've said this a lot before I started using it. And I said it at work one day and somebody like, what? Because they've heard the hammer and nail one. And in the same way that we kind of converted the spoon theory to being spell slots to make more sense to us. I really do appreciate the silver bullet and the werewolf analogy. Well, and it's different from the hammer and nail. Hammer and nail just basically says this is the one thing that you use to solve a problem. Dunk, dunk, dunk. Well, when all of your solutions look like hammers, all of your problems start looking like nails. Right. Well, and what this is saying is that if you start thinking that every problem has an easy solution if you only look hard enough for it, you are going to miss out on the fact that a lot of these problems that we have in our world, in our society, in our lives, don't have single actions that we can take that will solve them. And typically, any given single action is probably only good enough to solve part of the problem. And there's going to be some trade-offs, and that's okay. It's okay to accept an imperfect solution because there is no perfect solution. It's okay to accept something that does have a cost because costs are worth paying. When we see something that does not seem to be working, the fixes for it may not be simple things that just fix everything. We may only be able to address it piecemeal. And it's okay if something only addresses part of the problem because that's not the only action that you take. Don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Exactly. Much like the reason why, I don't know if it's our state or if it's our county or something, we could have a ban on declawing cats. We could. That was a law that was proposed and almost made it through because it is animal cruelty to do that to your cat. But 
there were exceptions baked into the law. And therefore, because it wasn't good enough for all the people who don't want any cats to ever be declawed ever, there is not a law to prevent it from happening because they torpedoed it. Yeah. Road to hell, paved with good intentions, all that stuff. Yep. This is not uncommon in Oregon politics in general, and Portland in particular. I have a rant about that, which I'm not going to get into. So anyway, that was my seven words. With that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 25 through 27 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of underestimating your opponent. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to our episodes, show notes, amazing art that I will probably have out soon, and tomorrow, if you are listening to this on the day it came out, we will have our next backcountry bonus pod available on our Patreon. We have yet to record it, so I don't know how good it is. It'll be fun. I trust you. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Or clink. 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 Ding is better. I agree with you, but clinks was the chapter. (laughs) I love you. Right, so this segment here is where Kvothe has the slow, dawning realization of just what exactly is going on with him here. Okay, that whole sentence, no sense. This section is best described as Kvothe has the slow, dawning realization of what exactly is happening to him occur. Nope. Not better. (laughs) Not any better. (laughs)